what we want to talk about today is the question, what is God's law? What is God's law? You say, I don't know if we're supposed to ask that question. Uh, we're just supposed to talk about God's law. Where we're not supposed to actually get down into the nitty gritty and talk about what it is. Actually, uh, there's no prohibition on doing that. It's just maybe not something that uh, is necessarily done as much as, as, as it is that people talk about applying God's law. But I want to address the subject this morning of what it actually is. Uh, to that end, I want to ask you this question. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, the law of God? What do you think of when you hear the phrase, the law of God? What comes to mind? What do you think when you hear that? Yeah, Mark. Commandments. Okay, commandments. Good. What else? Jesse. What's that? Love. Love. Good. We're going to go there too. Both of those things are very biblical things. Yes. What else? Anything else you think of when you hear the term the law of God? Okay, so we've got a pretty narrow view of what the law is. Uh, let me, um, maybe you think about a picture. Uh, you think about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Maybe you have a, an image in your head of, you know, the Ten Commandments. You have two tablets that are given. Um, maybe something along those lines. Maybe you think about what is written in the Bible. Um, let me just walk through then. Some of the things that the Bible says about the law of God, and the reason why I want to do this is just to, uh, to first start out and to talk about how the Bible speaks about the law of God in a number of various ways, and then to kind of work our way toward the idea that it is all rooted in some very, very basic concepts that are then applied in different ways, in different circumstances, including when it comes to what the government does and should do. So a few conceptions of God's Old Testament law. First of all, you would have uh, the Ten Commandments. And uh, I'm not sure if I, uh, let me see, if, if there is a PowerPoint, that's great. And if there's not, that's because of a communication error on my part. So uh, I'll just try to make that as clear as possible. So first of all, conceptions of God's Old Testament law, uh, the Ten Commandments would be one thing that, of course, would fall under God's Old Testament law. Where do we find the Ten Commandments in the Bible? What chapter of the Bible do we know? Exodus 20, that's right. Exodus chapter 20. So uh, Israel arrives at Mount Sinai, and they prepare to receive the law of God in Exodus 19. And then God speaks the Ten Commandments to them directly himself. Uh, they are so terrified, Israel is, by God speaking to them that they ask Moses not to let that happen anymore, but for him to go and to sort of be the, uh, the one to, not the guinea pig, but the guy that, gets, that hears straight from God, and then he can pass along the laws to them. But the words themselves of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 are actually passed along directly from God to the people. Um, another conception of the law would be a little bit broader, which we might call the Book of the Covenant after the language in Exodus 24, 8. Exodus 24, verse 8 talks about this, and it's referring to the things that were covered in the previous chapters after the Ten Commandments were given. Exodus 24, 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And the people had 
agreed that they would keep these commandments that God had given, these laws that God had laid out for them coming through Moses on the heels of the Ten Commandments. Um, if you want to get a little bit more expansive, you can say that sometimes the book of the law refers to at least uh, what includes the book of Deuteronomy and maybe more. Deuteronomy 31, 24 it says, uh, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may remain there as a witness against you. Now, it is possible that that includes the stuff that came before. Uh, there's also a very good chance that that refers specifically to the book of Deuteronomy that Moses had written down at that time. Uh, but it certainly includes the book of Deuteronomy as well. Uh, we get a little bit of a broader conception of the law in an Old Testament sense when the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10 verses 5 and 6 and he says this, uh, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Um, and, excuse me, the, um, just verse 5 on that. And there is a, a reference um, when he says, uh, when he speaks about this to Leviticus 18 verse 5 where he says these words. Sorry, I uh, don't have the text here without looking, uh, without turning there. So let me look at that. Leviticus 18 5. Leviticus 18.5, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So Paul writes about these in general, the commandments that God gave through Moses, not just limited to the Ten Commandments or even to those initial commandments given at Mount Sinai, but really just everything that Moses wrote at all, all the commandments that Moses wrote. Uh, Luke 24.44 Jesus speaks about the law in an even broader sense when he says, uh, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things, or that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Which means that it's not just the commandments that Moses wrote, it's also all the words that Moses wrote. And we understand then that the law, and the, the, the word law is used this way many times in the Bible, that the law does not simply refer to commandments and statutes and any legal matters or even moral commandments and requirements, but really to the entire content of all that Moses wrote. And in fact, we refer to that as sometimes as the Torah, which uh, refers not only to the concept of teaching, but also then uh, is rendered or referred to as the law on many occasions. So when we talk about the law, we are often just equating that literally with the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We can take this and even apply it a little bit more broadly, I would argue, when we come to a place like Psalm 119, where the psalmist speaks about God's law. Uh, it talks about those who are blameless, verse 1, who walk in the law of the Lord. And, of course, it certainly does include all the things that were laid down in the book uh, of the law of, in terms of the words that Moses wrote. But it kind of has a little bit more general flavor to it. Like anything that God says, anything that God does is uh, tantamount to the law of God in terms of our approach of submission and obedience to it. 
So I would argue that as you go through Psalm 119 and you see the word law show up, and that's more than we can survey in this, uh, in this morning, but that it refers just more generally, it kind of steps back and says, this is how I think about God's word in general. Okay, so those are just a few conceptions of the law uh, when, it, when it's making reference to the Old Testament. And I hope you already see that when, when we're talking about this, it, there are a lot of ways that the Bible uses that term. And when we come over into, even into the New Testament, there are going to be ways that pick up on that variety and, and run with it from there. Uh, questions so far when we talk about the Old Testament law and the variety of ways where that terminology or that concept is used? Any questions? Any comments? Yeah, Steve. Mm -hmm. I think it is that it law and pro sometimes the Psalms are added to that, like um, Jesus in Luke 24, the law and the prophets in the Psalms. But I don't think that's required to still be referring to everything that's in the Old Testament. Just the law and the prophets, which is basically Moses, and then everything in the Old Testament after that point is built on what Moses wrote. So it all springs from there. And everything refers back to that in some way, or you're living the wisdom of uh, the wisdom books in light of that law. Like it all just kind of flows out of that. So it's the law and whatever else. So the prophets is just kind of a catch-all term for any prophet who spoke the word of God after that. So yeah, when Jesus said in Matthew 5, um, and, and I want to get to that passage too, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I'll be there in a few minutes. But uh, when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill, he's basically saying the Old Testament, I'm not coming to undo any previous revelation. Everything you've got written down already, it's all going to be fulfilled, maintained, and even given you know, the credence that it deserves. So yeah, does that answer what you're, what you're asking? Good, good. Yeah, what else? Yeah, Marvin. Uh huh. The book of Ruth, and, and I'm sorry, what about it? No, Moses didn't write M Ruth. I would I would uh, lump that in with the prophets. Yeah, with Ruth as not not in the sense that it was. I mean, it would have been written by a prophet because all of the Old Testament was written by a prophet, whether Moses or a different prophet. So the law just refers to the foundation of everything that came through Moses. And then after Moses wrote, then everybody else, uh, it's all written by a prophet as well. And, and it just builds upon everything that God revealed in those first five books. Yeah. Yeah. But the book of Ruth, of course, would be equally inspired, equally prophetic, and so on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, why do we need that stuff? Why do we need the law in any capacity? And that might be dismissed as we don't need commandments because we're under grace. Or it might be that people think, uh, well, we are in a new era. We're in an era of grace or an era that's beyond the law. So why do we need, why do we need the law? Why do we need that at all? So yeah, there's a rejection of what is old and a rejection of what is a commandment. And both of those are, uh, those are, those are oversimplified and therefore inaccurate takes on what the law actually is and, and the value of it in a Christian's life. 
So I think we can, you know, we've talked about this passage a lot before, and you guys know this, but when 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is profitable, Paul is referring to the sacred writings, which were the Old Testament that he had known for a long time, um, and when he, uh, that Timothy had known for a long time, and uh, he's referring to the Old Testament and saying that the whole thing is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So that's for the Christian. That's not just for people that came before Jesus. Okay, um, let's talk about the uh, conceptions of the law in the New Testament. Um, I already mentioned the law of Moses, Luke 24, 44. Uh, let me show you a few ways where the law is spoken of from a little different angle in the New Testament. So if you want to look with me in the book of Romans, there are a few things here that are of note. In Romans, starting in chapter 2, chapter 2. And Romans chapter 2 is referring to people who uh, knew what to do and condemned other people for doing what was wrong, but they didn't do what the law said, and that in particular honed in on the Jews. And it says this in verse, starting in verse 25, For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And there is this question. You are not a Jew, and yet you do the requirements of the law. Hold that thought there, that word, requirements of the law, and turn over to chapter 8 of Romans, if you will. And it says this in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We'll talk about this more here on uh, in a few minutes, but this is telling us about what it would mean for a person to, in one sense, fulfill God's law. Now, we know that this is not something that anyone will do perfectly and at a level where they will be able to attain righteousness, but there's a different way in which believers are enabled to do this as the Spirit of God dwells in them. But the point is that there is something here that is given that is not even given to someone just because they're under the law that Moses gave to Israel. And there is, a, uh, there, there is a place for people to do things who are outside of that that's called the requirement of the law or the requirements of the law. And what this is referring to is what these other passages will show, which has to do with a more doing something that is the essence of what the law is. What does the law require? Not every single commandment that was given in Israel for their particular administration as a nation, but the heart of what's behind it. And Jesus is going to talk about that. Um, we read about the law of Christ. You can keep a bookmark in Romans if you want, because we'll come back here a couple more places. But real quick, I just wanted to make reference to a couple of other things. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul is talking about his, uh, he's saying that he is free in many ways, and he's talking about how he uses that. And the way that he uses this is with the view of other people. He says uh, in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself, excuse me, though not being myself under the law. 
so that I might win those who are under the law. He's referring to Jews who are under the Mosaic Covenant. He says, I am not in that place. I am, because I'm a Christian, not under the law. But I conduct myself in some ways by the same practices so that I might win them. And then verse 21, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. What Paul is doing here is drawing a distinction between the law of the old covenant on the one hand and the law of Christ on the other. Now, these two, as we'll see, are rooted in the same eternal divine principles. But functionally, and really just as a, in many fundamental ways, they are entirely different. Someone can be out from under the law of Moses, no responsibility to do anything that the law of Moses said as such, but still obligated and bound to do many things that are going to overlap with that in practice because they're under the law of Christ. But it's coming at it from a different governing principle. So again, we'll talk about that more. Galatians 6.2 says the same type of thing. It uses that same language of uh, being under uh, or of, of referring to the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2, it says, um, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Um, what does this law of Christ refer to? We're going to try to get a little bit closer to this. Back in Romans, we're looking in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Paul again has made it very clear that the people in the book of Romans who are Christians, that they are not under the law. And yet he speaks about the need for them to fulfill the law. They're supposed to do what the law says. So he says in verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Where do those commandments come from? Ten commandments, right? All on the, what we would call the second table or the more interpersonal side. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. What he's saying is that you fulfill the law as a byproduct of loving your neighbor as yourself which is what we're going to see Jesus talk about in a moment. Now, I think I want to give a caveat here that you guys probably all already know, or maybe most of you know, but we should know, which is that we don't get to define what that love is. The Bible describes what that love is for us. So we don't get to say, well, um, love is love, or any of the modern ways of thinking about love. Love is just doing whatever someone would want you to do for them, and we don't have, to, we don't have any kind of requirement on us for that. The Bible tells us what those things are. So we don't... Uh, we don't just look at this and say, no, all you got to do is love your neighbor as yourself, and then we get to define love, and then we fulfill the law, and we don't have to worry about God's commandments. That's not what's said here. But it does say when you pursue love toward your neighbor, then you will avoid doing the things that the law forbids. And it puts a little bit more of a uh, proactive, positive spin on the activity rather than what is required not to do. We'll... Uh, in fact, to, to kind of highlight this a little bit, I want to go over to the passage that uh, Jesse led us through last week in 1 Timothy 1. I want you to see the way that the Bible describes this. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
And it says in verse 5, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be what? Teachers of the law. Teachers of the law. Even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, if you are looking closely here, you'll probably notice that these types of people are the antithesis of what is instructed in the Ten Commandments. That basically what you have going on here are people who are violating the way that they should relate to God and the way that they should relate to other people. And Paul says the law and these commandments in this sense are given for them. Don't do this. Stay away from this. It's, it is given to him in people who are doing the things or inclined to do the things that God says not to do. But he says that's not all there is to it. And that's not the way to drive the kind of thing that God is after in us. The goal of our instruction, he says, is love. And that comes not just from having these boundaries on the outside that you cannot trespass, but from having, verse 5, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And this is what the gospel cultivates. This is what all of biblical instruction is meant to cultivate. That's why it's the goal of our instruction. It's meant to produce that kind of love. This then aligns with what Paul says in Romans 13. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. It's not going to violate those commandments. Instead, it's going to do good to them. So some New Testament conceptions of the law, the whole law of Moses, the requirement of the law, the law of Christ, um, the whole law in essence, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Um, while I'm here, I'll just mention one more. Um, now, we'll come back to this in a moment. Okay, one more in Romans 2. In Romans 2. And this, for me, is particularly instructive uh, if we want to just put a pin down for the sake of what should Gentile nations do and what should, and in fact, what do, in many cases, Gentile governments do. This is how this comes to be related. Verse 14 uh, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So what do we have here? We have a certain form of, of the law being written on the heart of people who don't have the Bible. How is that possible? You tell me. What's going on there? What, what is he talking about? What concept? Well, there's a, there's a moral standard that is written on the heart of man. It's not the same as what the Bible describes uh, according to the new covenant promise of writing God's law on the heart of believers. This is something different. When God writes the law on the heart of believers, he does so by the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and enabling them to desire to do the law. 
But this is referring more to a knowledge that then inclines them to do certain things that they don't always perfectly do or perfectly follow. But it accounts for the moral standards that you see in the world even when there is no biblical influence. When there's, when there's no Bible that causes them to say, you know, I probably shouldn't steal from that person. Or I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't commit adultery. I shouldn't murder. So Paul points to the Gentiles and says, look, there are things that they know they shouldn't be doing. And that's apart from the Bible ever coming to them. Now, the larger point he's making, and I think that I've mentioned this before in recent weeks, is that possessing God's commandments themselves doesn't make you righteous. Because even the Gentiles have some of those, but they don't do them either. So you can have the whole Bible and try to and uh, not do what God says, and that doesn't mean you're righteous. It's because you know the Bible. But here, for our purposes, what this is saying is that Gentiles understand to a certain degree what they're supposed to do already, apart from God's word revealed in Scripture ever coming to them at all. Um, so this is referred to here in verse 14 as the things of the law, stuff that just is kind of overlapping with it. Okay, so that's a few things that the New Testament talks about here. There are more passages that I want to go as far as key New Testament statements. But anything for now, what, uh, what questions do you have or, or other comments, any observations or other passages that come to mind as we go through this part of it? Anything that's on your mind? Yeah, Chad. How different would the New Testament, people in the New Testament uh, perceive the Old Testament law compared with what we do today? Um, it's going to depend upon how rightly they're understanding the gospel, for one thing. So there was a lot of confusion about it and, that had to be taught. And um, so uh, maybe, maybe before I go into a lot of details, um, as far as what's in your mind, would you be thinking like the Jews of Jesus' day or maybe people who were part of the church early on? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so how much would the additional commandments that they said, this is the way you have to do this, how much would that influence them? Um, or what would that, how would that affect their perception? Probably a lot. I mean, it's going to distort it, so it's going to make people misunderstand it. They're going to misunderstand what God, is, uh, what God has told them to do, what he hasn't told them to do. Um, they also are going to feel um, excessively burdened. Um, and there's a contrast there when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's part of that going on. Um, so... Yeah, they're, they're going to have a distorted understanding of who God is, a distorted understanding of the way to become righteous, um, distorted understanding of what it looks like to actually um, obey God from the heart because they just have all of these specific rules that they're going to have to follow. You see this probably in um, certain, I don't know, um, we, we call them fundamentalist circles, but where, you know, this is the checkbox kind of thing. You have to do this and this. And if you do that, that really... Even if you would say, no, that doesn't save me or that doesn't necessarily make me righteous, functionally, it very often does imbibe that mentality in someone. So I think that would affect those in several of those kinds of ways. It, it might then secondarily have the effect of making people think that God is cruel, that God is overbearing, you know, that there's um, the things about, about him that, you know, he just, it, it 
um, you know, what does he expect of me and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, is that what you're going for? Yeah. Okay, good. What else? Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, bas basically it is, uh, and it depends how, uh, how deep we want to go into kind of sorting through why, but the short answer that I would give you right now is based upon this and um, really Galatians 3 and 4, kind of working through the categories that God puts that in. I do think that the way that Israel pursued righteousness was of the flesh because they were doing it on the basis of law-keeping. They had a way they were trying to be right with God and a way of trying to be righteous. And that was intrinsically of the flesh because it was by keeping the law. So Paul makes the point that the law is of, it, the law itself, um, the nature of doing those works to attain righteousness is of the flesh rather than the spirit. The law itself, he'll say in Romans 7, is spiritual. So the law is itself not the problem, but it is the way of keeping the law to be right with God that's the problem that is of the flesh. And so if you, again, I know that I'm, I'm kind of just speaking about a vague thing, and I, I wish that I could kind of go there and, and prove it, and, I, and I'd be glad to do that maybe at another time or, or um, outside of the class. But if you read through Galatians 3 and 4, you have these categories of, you know, law, flesh, works, uh, works of the law on the one side, and then you have faith and the spirit and the promise on the other side. And those two things are just, Paul keeps those in separate categories, such that law-keeping for righteousness is of the flesh. And walking by faith is walking by the Spirit is actually where true righteousness comes from. Um, in practice, and not only, but faith, when you come to be right with God at, at the very beginning of your Christian life, um, that's by faith as well, and it's by the Spirit. So, yeah, is that what you're going for? Yeah, great, cool. Okay, what else? Questions, comments on any of these things so far? Okay, uh, let's then look at a few key New Testament statements about the law. Uh, first of all, believers are to know that they are not under the law, but they are led by the Spirit. And this is a true statement about every Christian. Every Christian. This is not to say every Christian is perfectly walking by the Spirit, but every Christian is led by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 18 says... But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then Romans 8.14 says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And of course, this passage in Romans 8.14 comes on the heels of saying that everybody who is a Christian has the Spirit of God. Romans 8 um, verse 10 says... Uh, excuse me, verse 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive 
because of righteousness. And he goes on to talk about the effects of that and how we have to put to death the deeds of the body. And then he um, says that not that being led by the Spirit of God is the same thing as the Spirit of God dwelling in you, literally the exactly same, same concept. But if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you are going to be led by the Spirit. So everybody who's a Christian is led by the Spirit, and everybody who's led by the Spirit is not under the law. So believers have the Spirit of God. Our driving, uh, our driving concept, our driving force of what, what leads us in the way that we live is not the law of God, but the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit of God is not going to go outside the commandments of God. And this is where we have to be careful not to set the Spirit against the Word or the Spirit against the law in any sense. Because what Paul goes on, uh, actually what he says previously in Romans 8 is vital. Which is that the Spirit of God enables us to keep the heart of the law. The heart of the law. So, let's look in the early part of Romans 8. Um... It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, it's a little bit uh, nuanced here, so just stay with me as I kind of work through some of this. But the, the law that's referred to in verse 2 has a little bit of a different idea. When he uses the word law, he's referring to a principle, uh, to a rule. The principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus or the driving rule, the governing rule of your life has set you free from the governing principle of sin and death. So here it's not so much talking about legal requirements or even moral requirements, but it's talking about a rule, a law. He says this in Romans 7 verse 21 when he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. He's referring to the rule. The word literally is law. It's the same Greek word. So he's finding a law, which is an unchanging, unbending principle. This is true all the time. And so it is here in verse 2 of chapter 8. The rule, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this principle that is at work in you, has set you free from the law of sin and death. So now you are no longer under this one domain, but you are living in another. But then he goes back in verse 3 and uses the law. And you'll see this if you have the New American Standard, that he capitalizes, that the translators have capitalized the word law in verse 3 to emphasize the fact that it's talking about what Moses wrote as commandments or as a covenant, not about this sort of just more uh, principle idea. And he says, what the law couldn't do, the law of Moses, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. So there's the payment side of things. And then here's what he does to sin and its power. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. People who are outside of Christ don't have the Spirit of God, and they can know that the law is good, but that doesn't enable them to do it. The law was weak. The law is good, he says in Romans seven twelve. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? No, may it never be. Rather, it was sin. So sin is the problem, and being in the flesh is the problem. The law is good. God's law is good because it comes from God. And even the old covenant law commandments were good because they came from God. But they had a weakness, and the weakness was they could not supply their own obedience. They couldn't enable you to do what they said. But God did something that the law couldn't do. He sent his son 
to die in our place as an offering for sin. And when he did do this, when he died, he condemned sin in the flesh so that we could do something. We could, if we have the Spirit of God, fulfill the requirement of the law. Now, that's a strange statement to make if we're not under the law. And if we're not supposed to do everything that the Old Testament law says. Because Paul is pretty clear in other places. Like in, you know, Galatians 4. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear that I've labored over you in vain. He says you're doing all this stuff that the, that the Old Covenant commands them to do. But that's not Christian living. So, uh, what is he referring to here? Well, he's referring to some other manifestation of the law when he says the requirement of the law and basically then what he's saying is the essence of God's eternal principles his eternal standards are what Christians are now able to do so when you come to Romans 8 4 and say the requirement of the law um, you might think of that simply as so that the the heart of the law or even the moral components of the law now I have uh, often argued and still maintain that there is no rigid division in the Old Testament law of Moses between what we would call moral sections, ceremonial sections, and civil sections. And there's no way to really parse all of those things out. But there is no doubt that the Bible describes things that are timeless moral underpinnings of the law of God. And to consider this, um, I want to look at what Jesus actually said about these things. So just to catch you up on um, some key statements about the law, believers aren't under the law, but they're led by the Spirit. Believers can, in one sense, fulfill God's law. Uh, Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And uh, I'm going to come back to that passage in a second in Matthew chapter 5, because I want to just cut straight to Matthew 22, where Jesus talks about the fundamental elements of the law. So Matthew 22, forgive me for jumping around a bit, but Matthew 22 This passage helps us to get our head a little bit out of the weeds of the specific commandments that were given to Old Testament Israel and to see where they came from and then to come back down into any situation across all of created history so that we can know how that we can work these things out. So Matthew 22, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then look at verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What is he saying by this? saying everything that is commanded in the entire Old Testament, all of these are ways that God has given for people to carry out these two things of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two uh, commandments that sum that up. So Jesus says these are the fundamental elements of the law. And you can think about how that would play out. Everything that the law describes. Uh, this roughly plays out in terms of the way that you can break down the Ten Commandments. Uh, and people have often referred to it in these terms. The first table and the second table. Now, I think that that's a misunderstanding, first of all, of um, necessarily how many uh, 
tablets were needed to even hold the law in the first place. The two tablets may well have been one copy for God written front and back and one copy for Israel written front and back because the two parties would store them together in the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God kept sort of his copy and Israel kept their copy. Uh, it's not even certain that you would, you know, the idea would be in some people's mind maybe that one tablet held the first four commandments and then because they didn't have enough room and then the second tablet had the other six commandments. Um, regardless of that, it is certainly true that starting with the fifth commandment uh, about, about, uh, not, or about honoring your father and mother and moving into not murdering, not committing adultery, and so on, that the commandments move toward interpersonal interaction, whereas the first four commandments, uh, in essence, refer to how to relate to God. Now, there are a lot of reasons why I would not say that we could just simply take these and blanketly apply these ten commandments toward anyone everywhere in particular because of the way that the sabbath command is so specifically focused toward israel but nonetheless there is a general division that they have which makes us so easily go to the ten commandments as sort of a basic moral standard for what ought to be applied everywhere and but i think that when we come to jesus's words here it's better to take these two commandments that he gives and let everything flow out from that route rather than going to the Ten Commandments and then starting from there. Because Jesus himself says that even those, the Ten Commandments, which are part of the Law and the Prophets, find their root in these two great commandments. So in essence, it is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now then, this is, these are the two great commandments in the Law, but is there any applicability toward people outside of Israel? Well, what does it mean for people outside of Israel to follow this? Um, let me give you an idea. Um, in Romans chapter 1, what is it that the people who are Gentiles, who reject God, what is the fundamental thing that they are judged for and condemned for? Does anybody know? What's the first thing? Before they're given over into all these particular sins, what's the problem? What's that? Denying God? Yeah, denying God and then they exchange God's glory for a lie and they start to make and worship what? Idols. Okay, they have other gods. They reject the one true God. They don't worship him the way that they should. And they start to worship other gods instead. And this aligns with what's going on early on in even the Ten Commandments, but certainly under the heading of this idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh, so there is an expectation that the Bible has that people who are not Christians would still, not, not an expectation that they will, but an obligation that even people outside the Bible have to love and to serve their creator. This is also stated in the book of Acts when Paul goes into Athens and instead of going into a synagogue, which he normally did and arguing on the basis of the Bible that they should believe the gospel, he goes and he, in Acts 17, proclaims that they are in error about their idolatry. They should know better than this because God has made himself evident around us so that we might grasp for him even though he's not far from us. And that they need to turn from these idols and they need to repent because God is going to judge the world in righteousness. You can read more details about that in Acts 17, especially verses 23 to 31. So there are instructions for people to relate to God properly and to fulfill that first command. All of which is to say that... These timeless commands that God gives are things that everyone should do. And we don't say that people are not guilty of them just because they've never gotten the Bible. They know 
some of the things of the law according to Romans 2. We've read about that. Gentiles do instinctively some of the things of the law. Their conscience will approve of them when they do it, and then it will disapprove of them when they don't do it. Which is simply to say that Gentiles know enough, even without the Bible, to be obligated to follow the two great commandments in their particular life context. And yet, none of us do it. So we are guilty of that we are supposed to follow that and uh, we simply don't and this is what makes us guilty before god not because we have violated the bible or even because we have violated the ten commandments as such although that is a fairly good proxy for what's required of all people but it's because we're guilty of rejecting what god has made known to us and what he requires of all men of loving god and loving our neighbor as ourselves so what does this mean then for the nations and for rulers, for rulers. And I just want to give you on this basis a very quick summary so that we can launch into this moving forward. Um, what does God require of the nations? What does God require of the Gentiles? He requires all individual people to obey the two great commandments, to love their creator and to do right toward other people. This is not just limited to Israel. This is God's law that is applied in Israel in that, their particular way, but it is applicable everywhere. He also expects rulers in their ruling to promote things that align with these two things and to personally carry them out as well. And we have seen such things as uh, Nebuchadnezzar being judged because he did not set up his laws in certain ways that were aligned with what God said was right. And that he didn't honor him himself in his character. So he expects rulers in their ruling to do the same thing. He expects them to submit to God, by the way. Psalm 2 gives a warning to the rulers of the earth that they ought to submit to God. At the same time, he does not require them to follow the specific laws of Israel's covenant that apply the two great commandments in their national and covenantal contexts. So God requires everyone everywhere including rulers in their ruling to do what god says what flows out of the law of god the two great commandments loving god loving your neighbor as yourself but he doesn't tell them that they have to do it in the way that is laid out for israel to do it in their particular circumstances and so there is going to be a lot of wisdom a lot of judgment calls involved in when they if they try to do this now there is one more question that I mentioned up front that I want to highlight that we are aiming toward, which is, um, in order to bring this about, what does God require Christians to do about this? What does he tell us to do if this is not taking place? And I think this is where a lot of us live on a functional level. Um, where, what does God permit and what does God require for Christians to do when they perceive that rulers are not following the law of God in this sense, in the way that they set up the government and in their own personal conduct. And I, I think this is, this is where we struggle. And this is where we have a lot of disagreements, potentially with one another, with other Christians, that we need to make sure that we sort through biblically. So what does God require Christians to do about this? What does he allow? What does he mandate? What is modeled in the New Testament? 
and so on. Those are the kinds of questions that we want to ask and that we want to address as we go forward. And I hope that you'll be thinking about that in those terms. So if you're thinking about government, as you read through the New Testament in particular and the things that the church talks about, uh, or the, that the letters to the churches talk about, that Jesus talks about and so on, that you will think about that concept. What does God allow and what does God require me to do when the government is not submitting to God's law in terms of following the two great commandments? All right, that's all the time we have for this morning. So hopefully that will be helpful in framing our discussion going forward. And uh, feel free to talk to me if you have any further questions you want to cover. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can uh, go to your word and sort through what you intend for us to do. And we ask that even as we think about how this might apply to uh, governmental things, even those uh, outside ourselves as we would desire for them to follow your law and to do what you've said, we do ask that our first and foremost desire would be to ensure that we ourselves are following it and that we are doing exactly what you have said and that we are, uh, as your word says, fulfilling the requirement of the law, that we might walk by the Spirit in every way, that we might do what you have told us to do, follow your commandments, and that we might glorify you and love you with all our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.